I, I think you probably all know, but I have it on good authority that the air conditioning is to be fixed this week. So uh, this might be our last Sunday enduring uh, in the heat. Uh, and so I will try not to be too long-winded. But I do offer that as a preference to say it is hard, as I thought about um, my, my last time uh, with you about Abraham. And it's tough to take a long-form study and, and shrink it to a single sermon. How do you summarize a study in Abraham? It's a very difficult task. What I would like to do is just remind you briefly of where we left off with Abram by simply reading the text. I'll spring off that text to look at the text that was just read for you, and then one more text to try and summarize our study in the life of Abraham. You don't need to turn here. I'll simply read it for you. We've covered it uh, nearly twice now. But uh, our Lord is going to re refer to these events, and, and, and not just these events, as you know, uh, but many events that then, of course, characterize the life of Abraham. But you'll notice it begins right here where we have lightly touched, and now I will read for you and we'll move forward as a kind of a foundational text that then we begin to build on for the next couple of moments. And that is simply this, then the Lord appeared to Abram. And I cite that for you because Moses repeats that uh, within the text to help you understand. You see, the Lord appeared to Abram. Now, he adds to that, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said. We covered that piece again, how the Lord often comforts us, guides us, and cares for us through the same manner that he did Abram, which is to speak to us through his word. But I draw your attention further to say, he says this to Abram, right? Makes this grand promise, to your offspring I will give this land. So Abram's response was to build an altar to the Lord. And then Moses adds, who had appeared to him? And then at the end, in the close of that little section that we're now done with, and I can't open up yet another section on Abram because it's certainly a long narrative, and it wouldn't help us to summarize our time as best we could for the time we spent together on Abram. But the conclusion to the matter of Abram building these altars to the Lord who had appeared to him and spoke, the little text concludes, and Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So I draw your attention again to the way our Lord will then speak of the life of Abram as characterized as a life of obedient faith. Because it's not merely Abram who in hearing the word of the Lord is to respond in faith to the Lord of that word and then perform and live fruitful lives of activity and obedience to what he has then heard. This will become known as the Christian life. So what we see of Moses carving out and describing of Abram is also what comes to be the marks of all of us who today would call ourselves indeed children of Abraham. 
So we jump forward this morning to try to summarize by going to John 8, a passage that you're very familiar with probably, that you've heard different sermons or readings upon in the engagement of Jesus with the Jews. Meaning, as John's gospel unfolds, uh, it's a typical kind of clash between Jesus and the Jews as a mark of those who are in unbelief. Antagonism between he and these individuals collectively spoken here as simply the Jews. I draw your attention to verse 31 where we get our start then. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him. Now, we talk about faith, and we've done this numerous times. I wish to leave it with you once again. When you think of what is faith, though, as a thing, what is faith? And the best we can take on the summaries of Scripture and take faith and kind of take the various texts where faith appears and pull it out and kind of put a definition to it or its actions of faith, and then we put together and say, this is faith. Remember, we're saying there is knowledge present, right? There's something to be known or, or heard. Oh, I see. And then there is this assent element that follows the knowledge. I assent to that. I recognize it otherwise as true. But then there's that final component to faith, which is the piece that challenges, which is the element of trust. You you move your estate into that thing that you have now exercised faith in. You're banking on it. So you know it, you believe it, and you rest upon it. This is faith. What we're dealing with here is the shorthand for assent. The Jews here in this dialogue are those who believe in him, as in they acknowledge, they assent to what they have seen and what they have heard, and yet they don't rely upon. How do we know that? Well, Jesus knows that and he makes clear of it to us. Look at how he speaks. The Jews who had, maybe we would say, assented to him. Jesus, knowing this, then adds this. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I speak of the abiding in the word because, again, we're drawing this upon Abram. What did Abram do when the Lord appeared to him and said to you, I will give this land to you and to your offspring? Abram abided by it. He relied upon it. He acted in obedience in reference to it. He built altars and called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus likewise says this is the mark not simply of Abram, this astonishing figure of the Old Testament to which we all acknowledge as the man of faith. This is the way of a disciple. Just as Abram, just as you, just as all of the sheep of my pasture, they abide in my word. Notice the response uh, to the question of freedom. He points to them, the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been a slave to anyone. How is it you'd say to us, you will become free? Jesus answered them, so see, they pivot to Abram. I don't think you understand us quite well. Let me help you. We are offspring of Abraham. Fair enough. Verse 34, 
Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son then sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now he grants them their, their, their comment to him. Look, 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 I don't think you, you, you're trying to share with us this concept of freedom and renewal. I don't think you get it. We're offspring of Abraham. More on that now, verse 36, or 37. Oh, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me. Why, why are they acting adverse to him? And this is a little bit more foreshadowing the larger, grander story of the narrative, pointing forward to the works of, of the cross. So they're going to run him off, and he's going to have a hard time. And we know the narrative that leads to the events of, of Calgary, or of, of Golgotha, of the Mount, of the cross. Uh, you seek to kill me, but, the, but the, the force of your anger or vitriol or bitterness is this. My word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen from my father. Let me just clarify. You do what you have heard from your father. See, notice the, inner, the engagement. Wait a minute. I just told you who my father is. It's Abraham. You as much as admitted, we're offspring of Abraham. Now you speak of this kind of ambiguous father. Jesus clarifies verse 39. They said to him in response to this, the father-son uh, engagement, maybe you did not hear us the first time round. Abraham is our father. Jesus then clarifies for all of us. Jesus said to them, notice very carefully as you read the text with me, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Again, we think of what has Abraham done? And I use that as a summary form of our time spent in hearing the great testimony and story of Abraham in Genesis 11 into 12 in his call and in his building of the altars. But here, I want to draw your attention. Notice how Jesus dissects it. There is a keen distinction here in the text for each of us to behold and to lay to heart this morning. And that is there is a way, you see, to be an offspring of Abraham and yet not a child. How do we know that we're not making too much out of the children comment versus the offspring? We're offspring of Abram. Oh, I know you're offspring of Abram. He is our father. No, 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 he's not. If you were your father and you were his children, you'd be doing what he did. There are two Greek terms here that are interplayed between offspring and child. One you can figure is the term offspring. They say immediately, we are his offspring. Jesus says, indeed, you are his offspring, meaning sperma, seed. Physical descendants, indeed. But you are not, Jesus makes clear in verse 39, you are not his tekna. You are not his children. 
You are not in his home. Though you be physical seed. You see, the point being established here by our Lord is that you can possess the external benefits of being of Abraham. What are these external benefits at this point in time in redemptive history? They have possessed the law, the prophets, and the writings. They, they possess the Old Testament covenantal scriptures. Don't you know who we are? Oh, I do. And you possess these elements merely externally. You possess these words culturally, socially, and as historical privileges. But as our Lord made clear already, my word finds no place in you. One commentator adds as he speaks on this text, he says, their protest here arose from a sense of spiritual superiority. They are the offspring of Abraham, after all. They are chosen by God out of all the nations of the earth. In other words, they are boasting in an external theocratic pride. Don't you know how strong I am? Don't you know the things I've accumulated? Don't you know the reputation of my name? Similarly, I wish to encourage you, myself as well, as we think on these things, and we let them probe. Similarly today, many abide in the church. for a sense of spiritual, cultural, or historical superiority over those who identify with no faith at all. This is a form of societal and religious self-righteousness. Very parallel to the text, which its bare minimum statement is something like this. Well, at least we're not pagans. Turn to illuminate this text and this comment just a little further. A critical text that we need to lay to heart is Luke 18. I am going to ask you to turn there. Luke 18 which again, we understand as children of Abraham. Those who would say, indeed, we share the faith of Abraham. A mark of sharing the faith of Abraham that terminates upon the same Christ as Abraham's is that the word finds a place within us. We abide in this word, and this word abides in us. Contrary to that is a self motivated righteousness, which again, in summary, would simply declare, at least we're not pagan. Notice uh, Luke 18, if you will, beginning in verse 9. He also told this parable to some, and here's your critical piece for context, this entire verse. Notice carefully, to those who trusted in themselves. But the trust upon themselves is for the purpose of righteousness. 
They trusted in themselves that they themselves were righteous. And that sense of the self then was motivated to treat others with contempt. Now again, let me read the text for you beginning in verse 10 as the parable now has context. And again, lay it to heart if again this is a point of renewal, repentance, receiving and resting. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore treated others with contempt. Okay, so let's examine the parable lest we be found as these folk. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, again, you see, as one writer describes the Pharisee here in the parable, and it's important that we receive this well, because it's similar to those who are the Jews who have the complaint against Christ. Writer comments this way, he says, quote, the Pharisee appears to the world as a paragon of godliness, a fine and pious, God-fearing and holy man who is to be applauded even as a mirror and an example to the whole world. Yet, you notice the Pharisee severely misjudges the root of his faith, which again, in self-examining oneself here under the weight of this text, let us judge the root of our own faith. For he severely misjudges the root of his own faith, which then sheds light on the fruit of his faith as manufactured, self-willed, in other words, like those arguing with Christ in John 8 as fruits external. There are two things that stand out here about his misjudging of his faith. I draw your attention to it first. The Pharisees' righteousness, you see. And again, I, I, I cite those who abide within the walls of the church as a sense of spiritual, cultural, or historical superiority over those who increasingly identify with no faith at all. Here, in this text, the Pharisee identifies his righteousness as self-originating. The Pharisee identifies his own righteousness as self-originating. He is, simply put, manically self-absorbed. How so? Well, notice again the saturation our Lord uses of the term I. In verse 11, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed, God, 
I thank you. Almost condescendingly, that I am not like other men. The evidence of this, verse 12, I fast twice a week. Furthermore, I give tithes of all that I get. Both of these statements regarding fasting and tithing are well beyond the bounds of the law. Indeed, if we were to look at the Pharisee, he is to be applauded as a mirror, an example to the whole world externally. He sees his self-righteousness. Again, his righteousness is self-originating. Number two, the second piece that he severely misjudges about the root of faith, which then sheds light on the fruit as manufactured, is number two, his righteousness is horizontally judged. His righteousness is horizontally judged. This is a temptation for all of us. It comes and it goes in different seasons, in different times, different points of achievement. We must be aware of the temptation to horizontally judge our righteousness. How so? We'll look at the statement again at the very beginning. Notice he isn't humble or comparative to God under wrath. I thank you I'm not like who? The grounds of my boast and my righteousness is that I am so thankful that I'm not like every other man. The litmus test for righteousness unto the Pharisee, unto a child external only, is a horizontal comparative righteousness to those who surround him. You will always win that contest. You will always pick someone below you so that you can assuage your own conscience. The fruit of self-originating righteousness, horizontally reinforced by judgment of other men simply who you select, who are lower than you and around you, produces nothing but pride and contempt for every other individual around. Its only fruit is contaminant. Pride. You see, the Pharisee here manifests the mindset of an offspring. In great contrast to a child. Now, I draw your attention to this section again as we look at the second response. Just to recall the context. Look at verse 10. Right at the very beginning of verse 10. Our Lord speaks of it this way. Two men. Not one. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee. And the other man, tax collector. 
I draw your attention to that because, remember, this would imply, or we are to rightly infer, that when the Pharisee is praying aloud in the place of the temple, the tax collector is clearly within earshot. They both went together to pray. And as one began to pray, the other man is well within view of being able to hear all that is said. The tax collector hears the prayer of the Pharisee and hears the peace. He agrees. He does think the Pharisee is correct. He does sense that he is the man of judgment. He is the sum total of the offenses that were just listed. Again, as the Pharisee speaks, I am not like other men. You know, and the first one he lists, extortioners. Unjust. Adulterers. And just for good summation, even like this tax collector. The tax collector stands in the hearing and receives that indeed he is the unjust extortioner. He is, in summarized fashion, a tax collector. But see, this is where the Pharisee gets it wrong. And so will we when we consider our personal performance in relation to our redemption. Again, I, I encourage you, you will always find someone in comparative analysis to be better than. Always. You are the undefeated winner. But you see, that isn't the right scale. The greatest difference between the Pharisee and the tax collector, though the Pharisee think it is, the greatest difference between them is not their external sinfulness. Oh yes it is, I'm not a tax collector, I give on all my, that I get, I tithe, I fast above the law's requirements, that is our distinction. No, it is not. No, it is not. The distinction is the object of their salvation. That is the critical distinction. Our Lord makes this bruisingly clear. When he says then in verse 13, Okay, so I'm telling this to a bunch of people gathered who trust in themselves. For what? For their righteousness. What does that promote within me to treat others with contempt? I'm telling a story about two men that went together to go pray at the temple. 
and the object of their redemption couldn't be further apart. The second man began to pray, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat upon his breasts, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice the distinction. God, I thank you, you know, that I'm not like everybody else. God, Be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, a true child, not merely an external offspring. I go to church every Lord's Day. Well, I miss a few, but I, I go regularly at least. I give every time I go. I, I, I serve in this capacity. I lead my family this way. Again, all these, these external elements that we may be tempted to rely upon and, and, and not acknowledge, assent to our greatness, and then rely upon it. But not a true child. A true child. I know you're an offspring. But if you were a child, you'd be doing what Abraham has done. A true child is one who rightly perceives his condition. This is the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of a heart that's receptive. One that doesn't come to claim and to announce. One who humbly begs to come and receive. A true child is one who rightly sees his condition as one who today, apart from Christ, is under the wrath of God, and justly so. Be merciful to me, because I admit I am a sinner. Yet, being a sinner does not merely navel-gaze and wallow, but in faith he looks to the mercy of God provided through the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, be merciful to me. A sinner. The Lord then concludes the parable in verse 14. Just in case, in our necessary kind of dense and fleshly manner, we wish to say, oh, 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 you don't understand who we are. Uh, you know, you know, we're offspring of Abraham, you know. Oh, I know. 
I know. Oh, you don't know who we are. You know, we're 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 reform folk. We're we're, we're we, we go to Lord's Day worship and receive it and rest upon it. Well, you know who we, you know how we behave and act. I I I, I know. I need. I, I want to remind the sheep of the pasture where their confidence in deeds lies, not in their own performance, but in the performance of another, always and alone. So our Lord makes clear, verse 14. I tell you, as, as you've heard, right? So, so the, the two men and the prayer and the responses. So, so I tell you the meaning is this. This man, the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified. Rather than the other, what are we to receive? Well, for everyone who exalts himself, you know, who trust upon themselves that they are righteous in and of themselves and self-generated activity, and which treat others with contempt because of their self-generative righteousness, Everyone who does that, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is what it means in the continuation of the redemptive historical story of what it means to be a child of Abraham. It is, beloved, to possess a faith that rests upon and receives all of Christ as he has freely offered to you in the gospel. This is what Abraham did. This is what the children do. In conclusion then, it's fit for me to, to, to read to you Paul's comments from Romans. Why study Abraham? Why understand faith as an instrument that rests upon Jesus Christ alone? that doesn't bring argumentation of what I've done and how I've performed and who I really am, anything other than as God truly sees me for who I am, apart from him, a sinner in need of mercy. I commend the stories and the writings of Abram to you for your faith, for mine, as I conclude this way, as Paul makes comment, what is said of Abraham? That Faith, beloved, faith was counted to him as righteousness. And not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up 
for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Praise be to God. Let us pray. Our Father,